0: Hello and welcome to Talking Transatlantic with the stellar Talina Kapari in the US.
1: And out of this world, but also still in the UK, Richard Wilson. In this podcast, we are escaping the earth and heading deep into space. And who wouldn't want to escape right now?
0: Yep, we'll be heading back in time 13.8 billion years to the big bang and the dawn of time. Or was it a big bounce? And did time already exist?
1: Okay. My head already hurts, but we have an expert to explain what Richard just said and more.
0: So we're dealing with the big questions today, Zelina.
1: Well, that's okay because we have the guy who can give us the big answers.
0: That's right. He's a cosmologist, a physicist, a builder of huge telescopes, and his name is Professor Brian Keating.
1: Yes, and welcome to our show, Brian. So Hello. Hello, hello guys. Yay. So, a distinguished prof-
2: well, we would
1: say professor of astrophysics. That's your
2: example. Um, my my technical title is, yeah, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics.
1: So, uh... <laughs> So we're going to have lots of questions for Brian today, and what is wonderful, when you listen to Brian speak coming from someone who doesn't have a scientific background, he explains it really well. <laughs> <So> <laughs> everybody can listen and learn something, which is fun. So.
0: Well, um, this is the thing, because you are, uh, as you just said, a professor of physics, which kind of often looks at the very, very small, but... This is the way, am I right in saying cosmology is these days, that we understand the very, very big from understanding the very, very small quantum particles. Would that be accurate?
2: Well, yeah, it's funny because you um, you know the old phrase that uh, American Americans and Brits are divided by a common language. So I think you mis- <laughs> you misunderstood. I, I said phys ed. I teach phys ed, not physics. So ah. I think- this interview is going to go in a very different direction. Than the, than the, um, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, guys. I, I we, We've noticed one of the striking features of our cosmos is that the very tiniest things in the universe, the protons, neutrons, the croutons that I love so much, they uh, <laughs> they influence the grandest structures in the universe, the patterns of matter, of energy, the distribution of, of light and matter that we see is influenced uh, on its largest scales by what happens at its smallest scales. So things like quarks and neutrinos are playing this enormous role. And uh, to return the favor, cosmologists are now using the entire universe as sort of our atom smasher. We're not content to wait for technology to get bigger and better on Earth, say at the Large Hadron Collider in, uh, in the CERN laboratory there in Europe or the Fermilab facility here in America, we're no longer only relying on those wonderful machines that cost billions of dollars, but we're also using the universe as the possibly the largest uh, ever particle detector, particle accelerator, and generator of information that we can study. So it's come full circle. It went from the influence of the smallest particles in the universe determining how the universe appears and now we're using the universe as sort of our ultimate atom smasher.
0: It's a huge laboratory. Uh, exactly. And in your book, you... Um, Wait, first, uh, so let's
1: introduce his book. Brian has oh, a okay, bestseller.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I hold it up Nobel for no one Prize. but us to see on the conferencing app. It's called <laughs> Losing the Nobel Prize.
2: Um, and, and it's, it's
1: bestseller... It's, all around
2: the world and let's in, the it's, uh, in, the in the universe. It's a bestseller in the universe. Bestseller on Alpha Centauri. It's uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so. And um, explain more
1: what the book is about for those who do- yeah. don't like don't yeah. have a
2: good grasp on. it. He always puts it up on his background so cover. Yes. Yeah, there's a new cover. I'll send you guys some links to what the cover and pictures and stuff look like. And there's an audio book. It's really a memoir. It's it's less of a science book uh, than than it is a memoir. Uh, sort of a treatment of what it feels like to be an astronomer struggling with the biggest questions of life from the, the origin of the universe to you know how do you how do you become an advisor how do you mentor people when you're not really sure what you're doing yourself you're kind of learning on the job um, and and all these things in the seasons of life that that um, that just ordinary people go through and and the, the message I'm trying to impart is that scientists, despite the stereotypes, are ordinary, average people. or normal people. And in fact, the stereotype that we're all just these walking you know, Wikipedia brainiacs, I think does a disservice because, you know, you look up at somebody like an Einstein or a Hawking, Stephen Hawking, uh, you might think, oh, I could never be like that person. But they're, A, they weren't always who they became. And B, they made, you know, more than their fair share of mistakes along the way. Um, Einstein, you know, uh, had, had at least as many wrong ideas as right ideas for, as a matter of fact. And I always say it's too bad because otherwise he could have had a promising career.
1: I like that, Brian. Thank you. I, you know, you're not, you guys aren't walking, you know, encyclopedias. I love it. So, so <laughs> it's, like, I said, Richard? He explains things well to anyone. does. that's,
0: and that's you know, um, That, that's I, that, that the, was a uh, great
1: explanation, Brian.
0: Because <laughs> it, it's a very personal book and you, um. And, you, you know, you, you're you very honest and personal in it. And and um, it's, it works as you tell your story. It does. It works very well in uh, to, to explain, you know, keep dropping in the science, and that becomes very accessible. Mm.
2: Yeah, I try to weave together, a, you know, kind of a narrative of what it felt like to do, to go on this journey, as I'm quite, you know, frank about in the book, trying to uncover the mysteries of the universe on one hand, but also benefit the earthly reward of winning a Nobel prize along the way. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm candid about that in a way that, you know, is, is unusual because most scientists won't admit that they venerate the Nobel prize to the level that they do. And it's become, you know, sort of this touchstone, uh, comparison for the quality worth of a scientist's work. And then, as you know, people's work often translates into their self-worth, and I think you know I want to sort of combat that in a way that that um, was beneficial to young scientists in particular who wanted to learn more about the universe, but were intimidated by it. It's it's so uh, it's so vast and all-encompassing. Perhaps uh, we're turning away some of the brightest minds uh, that could possibly otherwise be lost. We want to we want to retain them.
0: I get that feel from the book that you you're inspiring people.
2: Yeah, it's a very important part of my life. You know, I realize as you'll see at the end of the book, no spoilers, uh, but you know, I don't <laughs> win the Nobel Prize. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> that's that's um, a spoiler. But but the you know the end of the book, I start talking, ruminating a little bit on the legacy that I've received from my teachers. And that I've continued to this day uh, in in my life, and I, I note that the word scientist in Russian, and Talina is an expert in the Russian language, so she can correct me if I'm wrong. But it means um, a scientist is someone who was taught. It means a a, per, a mentored person, effectively. And I thought I, I I ruminate on that and what it means to me, and not just as a, as a parent. You know, you educate your children, etc et but but also you know as a as a scientist in the chain in the longer tradition, you know my family is is you know just you know goes back I know a few generations in my family uh, history, and thanks to things like you know twenty three and me I might know DNA going back you know hundreds of thousands of years, but in my academic lineage I can actually trace it back uh, over the course of twenty generations uh, from the 1500s through to the graduate student of my graduate student. And it's just unbelievable uh, that, that we have this chain of transmission. And I just want to emphasize how meaningful it is to play a part in that grand tradition of science. That's the essence of science is standing on the shoulders of giants. And these giants that we have to look, look to, you know, we also have an obligation to create the next generation.
0: Because you identify quite a lot with Galileo. First man the to uh, yeah, yeah, in the sure. book, yeah. How far are you along in the book? Oh, right, in the book, um, I'm on to chapter two because I only got it, um, I got it uh, about
2: five days ago. So oh, actually, okay. Nine more to go and with two
1: kids at home, it's you know, you don't
2: have as much time. Like <laughs> <Yeah. just chapter laughs> no, two. no so commuting, <laughs> all Right, yeah, um, nine more to go, it's it's okay, yeah. right, plus an epilogue,
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: um, but uh,
0: Galileo, the first uh, first one to point. Of, Uh, A telescope at the stars, a perfect
2: telescope, and then um, and that's been your career, hasn't it? Well, uh, yeah. It started off when I was a kid. You know, I I unwittingly repeated all the discoveries that Galileo made with a telescope in 1609 and 1610 which you know is not really that surprising because I'm standing on his shoulders I mean he was the first to use it he didn't invent the telescope as uh, contrary to popular belief but he did use it for astronomical purposes and more than that he used it to try to learn more about the mathematical properties of nature he was also a mathematician and that was an incredibly uh, you know vital part of his contributions to to the study of the universe because he applied for some say for the first time the scientific method where you look at something you obtain information we call it data and then from those data we then draw inferences about the properties of the universe in order to make predictions and some of those predictions that he made came true and some of those predictions were, were wrong and i love the humanity of this individual That he was so great in in one sense uh so ordinary in another sense but all throughout it he just comes off as a human being and that spoke to me very deeply and and influenced me greatly to this day in fact the type of telescope that i would later go on to create along with my colleagues at the south pole called bicep which is the hero of the story um that 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 you know story has you know direct connections back to the exact same type of telescope that Galileo used the telescope with lenses in it not enormous mirrors this is a small telescope that you know human sized telescope just like Galileo's and so that kind of tickled me and we ended up making the announcement of our discovery you know not not far off from what would have been you know Galileo's uh, you know something like 450th birthday something of that uh, at that level and uh, it was just uh, it was uh, you know, startling to see the parallels I'm not you know I don't compare myself to Galileo uh, but but you know looking at at someone with his with his great accomplishments mixed with his uh, very human failings uh, was very uh, almost cathartic to me to realize that you know heroes don't have to be perfect
0: yeah um, in them um, some people have commented in science that people are scientists being encouraged to to publish papers about when they've got things right and and discouraged from discussing when they've got things wrong. But, I mean, that kind of ties into what you said about the Nobel Prize, pushing people wanting to win this, this prize, this accolade. But it sounds like um, under, being wrong and understanding why you're wrong is just as important as being right. Is
2: that right? Yeah. I think, I think that's a hallmark of a good scientist. You know, it's, it's like if you are in a relationship and you are always having to be right, you know, in any argument you have, uh, I've heard it said, well, yeah, I've heard (laughs) it said like, you can be right all the time. You can be in your arguments with your spouse. You can be right all the time, but you can't have a spouse all the time and be right. You know, (laughs) there has to be some give and take. And yet in science, we have this selective filtration method where, You know, page one of the New York Times will publish our results from BICEP. In fact, it did appear there on St. Patrick's Day 2014 in uh, very big letters and on the top of the fold, so to speak. And then the later kind of retraction when we recanted what we claimed was the implications of the, of the data that we acquired, we didn't, in other words, the data weren't wrong. We didn't make a blunder and leave the lens cap on the telescope. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't do anything. So, so and, and that does happen. Things akin to that do happen. Mistakes that lead to grand claims get retracted because of blunders. We didn't make a blunder. The data are phenomenally sensitive and accurate. However, The interpretation that we had seen the very first flash of creation, that's what had to be recanted. And yet that recantation, if you will, that occurs on page B11 of the, you know, Saturday edition of, you know, uh, and and it doesn't receive any press conference like we had or anything like that. So science is self-correcting. It's adversarial. You know, we're trying to prove each other wrong more than we're trying to prove each other right. And, uh, and that's part of its greatness, but it also leads to somewhat dis- distorted picture of, of how science proceeds, and, and furthermore, the Nobel Prize contributes to that. So my telescope is a refracting telescope, and I talk about, you know, that means it has lenses, and I talk about how the Nobel Prize is sort of like a refracting telescope whose lenses are broken, and that distorts their perceived reality through these uh, incorrect refracted images of what science should be like. And I get, you know, there's only three chapters in the book about what's wrong with the Nobel Prize, but I use it as sort of a springboard to discuss science and, and emotion and passion, ambition uh, as well.
0: There's um, the, the certain questionable um, aspects of, of politics in, in, in this, this day and age. Um, and especially when we're seeing certain politicians and how they're reacting to the science or otherwise of the coronavirus lockdown, there seems to be a bit of a conflict between politics and science.
2: Yeah, a friend of mine uh, speaking of Galileo, his name is Dr. Mario Olivio. He's a renowned uh, theoretical astrophysicist at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, worked on the original um, data from the Hubble Space Telescope. He has a new book out called Galileo and the Science Deniers. <laughs> you know, so that's a, a pretty bold statement. And he draws parallels in the book. This is, you know, books are written years before they actually come out. And uh, this book was written, you know, probably a year or two ago. So it doesn't feature COVID-19, but it was released last week. And I had him on my podcast, the Into the Impossible podcast and yes. uh, your listeners can great to that, watch yeah. that yeah thank you yeah and, all your uh, listeners
1: I, out there can hear Brian but is your podcast once a month or
2: uh, it's weekly? like once a day lately I, I've been uh, <laughs> Oh. Okay. I, I, I had one of my rare you know kind of good ideas which was that authors such as myself rely very much on book tours even if they're minor authors like myself, but but you know, especially with major authors, and all book tours were canceled worldwide. So I realized okay. I could uh, the website a, said
1: once a month, but now it's every day.
2: No, it's every day. Yeah. Oh well it's almost every day. Um oh. and mostly going to my YouTube channel because what I do is I have illustrations, I have B-roll footage that we put in. I'm really producing high quality content thanks to my uh, producer Stuart Volkow here in San Diego and also I have an assistant named Melissa Miller, and she does great work. And we put together resources, show notes, um, uh, exercises, and uh, we talked to really provocative, entertaining, brilliant intellectuals about their books and ideas. And uh, so getting back to Galileo and science denialism, uh, Mario, my friend Mario, in our video, we talked about this, and we talked about uh, the fate that Galileo suffered because of his, you know, unwillingness to recant, his belief that the Earth was not the center of the universe, and he claimed, contrary to and uh, you know wisdom handed down since antiquity, since Aristotle and and uh, perhaps even beyond that, that science uh, was wrong. Uh, the Church it was wrong in a sense, and that science was suggestive of a new reality where the Earth was just a planet that orbited around the Sun, and he did that uh, for, uh, in many books, but one in particular, I talk about in my book called the Sidereus Nuncius, the starry messenger. And then later he made the, the grievous sin of, of really publicizing the fact that the sun was the center of the universe and that he was forbidden to do by the church. And so he was imprisoned under, you know, uh, you know, forced to recant his, his claim by, you know, bowing down, kneeling on his knees in front of the Pope in uh, 1632. And uh, 1634, and uh, he was then imprisoned in a in a villa that I um, have pictures of that in in uh, in the book and elsewhere. That uh, I ended up having a conference of my own in, in outside of Florence. In it was quite lovely. Uh, Tony, <laughs> I know you and Mike would love it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know the house arrest was kind of uh, very genteel. Like I think Bernie Madoff would trade very. You know, very quickly, his uh, imprisonment for Galileo's. And yet, we have this notion that Galileo is kind of tortured for science. And Mario makes this case, and I don't fully agree with it, but that there are parallels between denying global warming and denying, you know, that the Earth, that the sun goes, uh, you know, is at the center of the solar system. So I I think there are parallels. I think you can stretch it a little bit too far. I, I don't, I make the point, you know, to Richard's question. You know, when we talk about, you know, even COVID 19, there are experts on, on different sides of it. And it's not like, you know, let's take Einstein. So, Einstein is typically regarded as the greatest scientist of all time. And we can debate that, but, you know, it's certainly extremely brilliant. He felt like there was no Big Bang, he was passionate. He said there was no, the universe is static, uh, you know, and eternal. And that was completely wrong. So, I, I make the point to, to Mario in our conversation was Einstein a science denier? I mean, they're, they're you know, I don't think you would say that. <laughs> and even Galileo didn't, you know, he had some real, you know, he believed you know, he would do astrology and do, you know, uh, things that we don't really have any credibility uh, nowadays. So I, I think it's, it's, you should strike that line very carefully. And yeah. um, I, I think we're living through unpar, unprecedented times. I, I worry that, we should have forecast this years ago and we should have had preparations around the world, but no country has really handled this particularly well, you know, that in the Western world at least. And mm-hmm. so I, I do worry about um, uh, about drawing too many distinctions and conclusions from, you know, uh, uh, about the future of science and listening to scientists based on COVID.
1: And are you it, it, working on any projects now besides your podcast at home or writing another book? What have you been doing like since the lockdown, Brian? <clears throat>
2: So yeah, I've got a and lot YouTube of
1: YouTube uh, channel, <laughs> and so.
2: yeah, yeah. The YouTube channel is uh, is a relief. It's kind of uh, gives me a little comic relief, and I get to talk to people far smarter than myself. I talked to Carl Sagan's daughter, Sasha Sagan, last week. Um, she wrote a wonderful, delightful book uh, about rituals and meaning. And uh, I've talked to you know atheists and 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 believers and and all sorts of people. The biggest picture topics, and a lot of it's just about freedom of thought and ideas, which is, is really the bedrock of a civilized society. Uh, so, yes, I'm doing that. My main project nowadays is called the Simons Observatory. And yes, so- we wanted to
1: get into that. Could you explain that a little better? That's
2: yeah. a, that, is that polar bear? No, uh, polar bear is uh, is a is a distant relative of the Simons Observatory, and it's a little bit tortured, but but what ended up happening is all, all these experiments, we try to come up with corny names for them, acronyms or whatever. <laughs> so BICEP stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization, but it's also because the pattern of light that we're looking for is this twisty, curly, uh, rotating pattern on the sky, and the BICEP, you know, as Talina knows from her or massive guns over there. Uh, <laughs> the bicep is what, uh, is what does the curling and we're looking for this curl pattern. So I named it bicep, but the Simon's observatory bit. is kind of learning from the lessons of bicep two. So bicep two made these astonishing, uh, images and, and discoveries. Uh, but yet one of the most important discoveries is that it made is that we weren't adequately prepared to deal with the, uh, curve balls or the, the sticky wickets as you say across the pond over there (laughs) Uh, and that we had to do uh, and we had to enhance what bicep was by adding new technological capabilities and so some of those capabilities made it into an upgraded version of bicep called the bicep array which operates at the south pole right now and then um, uh, and then in competition with that is an experiment that i am co-leading called the simon's observatory and that's in Chile. So uh, the high Atacama Desert of Chile at 5,200 meter elevation is where we have one of the world's highest operating telescopes when it when it will begin observations in a few years. And pre- the predecessor to that uh, is called Polar Bear, Simon's Array. And there's another experiment led by Princeton called the ACT-Atacama Cosmology Telescope. So I talk about those and how they have um, really now taken the torch along with Bicep's upgrade, called Bicep Array, to the future to really hopefully answer this question once and for all, you know, did the universe have a singular origin or not?
0: Big, uh, big question. And um, do you have a, a gut feeling
2: about that? Well, you know, I make the case in the book that, the you know, scientists really don't want to rely on, on gut feelings in the sense that we, we want to, you know, very carefully maintain a, a dispassionate connection between our science and our desires. Unfortunately, um, you know, as I say in chapter six, the only reason I know it's in chapter six is that um, a guy wrote a book about uh, Jim Simons himself, the legendary Wall Street investor, and his chapters, his, one of his chapters, I think, no, actually it's his chapter six, uh, has a quote from my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which is kind of strange, but, but it says uh, something to the effect that, you know, scientists are human beings, And, uh, sometimes when data and desire are in conflict, um, emotion loses out, you know, wins out over evidence, something I'm trying to quote myself. You know, I always say, I don't want to be, I remember hearing Charles Barkley. I believe he once said that he was misquoted in his autobiography. So I don't ever (laughs) want to have that. Um, but, But in reality, what we're trying to do is, is be as dispassionate as possible. Of course, we're only human. So. On one hand, we we could confirm that the universe had the, had an origin of time. Uh, on the other hand, we could say that there, it's inconclusive. We don't know that it did have an origin of time in the sense that what's called inflation took place. But, um, but either way, I'm trying to get myself in a mode where it doesn't matter to me. It's clear that we would have won a Nobel Prize had we been born out. I don't know if I would have personally. Uh, some people could make that argument uh, I discuss in the book you know, various uh, opinions about that. But but more generally, whoever would detect these curling, twisting patterns of, of light from the origin of the universe, he or she would, you know, be on the short list, certainly to win a Nobel Prize. But I'm trying to pave a way forward where we don't only look at that as the arbiter of, of good and evil, of winning and losing. And that the 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 passion, the pleasure, the joy that we get and the privilege that we have to be scientists and and play with ideas like children uh, trying to understand how uh, how to solve a puzzle. That is the deepest satisfaction that I came away from this book, um, having written this book.
0: Well, clearly um, do you like spiders?
2: No. Who likes uh, spiders? I don't think. Well,
0: well, um, I think um, Ryan quite likes the spider's web, and and I've been, um, I've been. This is in the book. This is in the book. Oh, um, okay.
1: the, um, because, <laughs> I don't want any Brian's lectures that he has. I just
0: <laughs> it's it's a great uh it, it, it's a great theory that because bicep, like you said, is is a refracting telescope, it's yes. not some huge radio telescope looking like a massive radar dish. Um because it was built to do the job. It was supposed to do no more, no less. Would that be accurate?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think that is what we were inspired by was uh, one of my leaders and my mentors. Uh, his experiment called Boomerang, which which made this wonderful experiment. Again, another acronym, very evocative acronym. <laughs> you guys are all about the acronyms. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's what we spend most of our day doing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny because I was thinking today. You know, we spend all this time studying the cosmic microwave background, this heat left over from the Big Bang, the origin of the elements uh, uh, that make up our bodies and make up the universe. But you know, nowadays we're spending so much more time on the cosmic zoom background. You know, trying to get just the right background <laughs> picture. <laughs> you know, with all these scientists. But yeah, the the greatest kind of joy that that you get is when you see something that's very elegant in science. And, and sometimes that can, you know, one of my colleagues, Sabine Hansenfelder, she thinks that that's actually bad when you try to make your theories or your experiments beautiful, when that's your priority. As your uh, countryman, uh, Paul Dirac, Nobel laureate, once said, it's more important that your equations be beautiful than that they be right. And I, I disagree with that, but there's certainly this attractiveness, you know, quotient that really does amplify the impact of something like when you think about a word like a black hole or the big bang these are very evocative terms and they have a certain compact elegance to them and so all the more so when you see it in terms of your technology and if you can build something that's as simple as possible but no simpler so bicep was sort of like that bicep is using the very most simple um, telescope design that you can have which is to make a, uh, which is to make a refracting telescope out of a, a couple of lenses, and use those and only those to couple to light as ancient as the hoary old universe.
1: I have a question, Brian. This is, you know, uh, yeah. for those who don't understand the Big Bang and think it's only a TV show with Katie <laughs> or whatever, could you explain what is the Big Bang? Because people, many people just like, oh, it's a really, you know, it's a funny show, but they don't actually know what is it about.
2: Yeah. So if you look out at the stars, if you look out at the heavens, there's really only one or two things that you see that ever change, right? You only see the moon moving around. Maybe you see um, the sun, you know, is moving. You don't see those against the stars, but you see the moon against the stars. Sometimes mm-hmm. we see we see UFOs and we keep those secret. We don't, we don't talk about those. Uh, <laughs> did I say that out loud? <laughs> this is only – we, we haven't started recording yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot talk about the alien autopsy. Actually, I did a podcast with Sarah Skulls, is a friend of mine. She wrote a book about why human beings are seeing so many UFOs. And, uh, yeah, I've that, yeah, I watched that, yeah. Yeah, so check that out if you're interested in that. But in all seriousness, uh, for millennia, you know, there was no Netflix. Uh, If there was a a quarantine back in the, you know, in the 1500s, there was no Netflix. So what did you watch in the nighttime if you were up, if you had insomnia? You looked up and you saw the moon and you saw a couple of things that would move around. And those were called planets, which means wanderer. But other than that, the universe is basically looks completely static. It looks completely sterile, and it doesn't change. So it's natural to think that the universe is eternal, that it had no beginning because nothing ever changes. Not like you look up and you see a new crater on the moon, or all of a sudden a new, a new you know, every now and then something would happen, but but not very frequently. Um, and uh, and for you know millennia, that's what people thought. And you know to kind of counteract that, we uh, we. We came to the conclusion in the 1920s, a man named Edwin Hubble observed that galaxies in the universe were all moving away from us. So it was like every galaxy in the universe, you know, didn't like our choice of de- of deodorant. And so uh, because, of, because of that, the conclusion that we reached was in the future, galaxies will be even farther away from each other. That means that in the past, galaxies were much closer to one another. And in fact, we could, we could posit that all the galaxies in the universe were touching each other in a single point. And maybe all the matter in the universe emerged from a single point. That event was called the Big Bang Theory, Actually, it was quoted by another countryman, Fred Hoyle of, of Richards, and he coined it as a pejorative, as an insult. I guess Big Bang means something to your British listeners that it doesn't mean to uh, we Yankees, but uh, we won't get into that. It's a family show. A <laughs> family show. Uh, but he coined it derisively, and um, but it turned out it stuck because uh, it actually is a very evocative description of what we think of as the early universe's Genesis moment, where it, something came perhaps from nothing and we want to understand how that came about scientifically to this day. So this brings us <laughs> to the, the uh,
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was the best one I've ever heard. So,
2: yeah. <laughs> so
0: do you know, now it's clear to me now.
1: No, it was clear. It's good. See, when you speak to me, you know, science is it, you know, yeah. No.
0: <laughs> but but <laughs> then this
1: point. Th- so I like to have, you know, and you know, <laughs> and how would you explain my turn? But,
0: but then there's <laughs> the big bounce, isn't there? The, um, which kind of suggests, would that be right in saying it suggests there was a universe which then contracted and then to a point and then expanded again?
2: Yeah, there is uh, a competing theory which tries. So what scientists do, and it's very confusing, and I know it is, but but it's just the process by which science moves forward. So think about Galileo and and looking up at these planets and stars. Oh, sorry about this. I've just got That's a okay. long child. i got to... An oh, undergraduate, <laughs> yeah. an, under, an undergraduate is coming to the home office hours.
1: <laughs> That's right.
2: Hang on, here, here's the door about to close.
0: <laughs>
1: you got excited. <laughs>
0: I've dropped my headphones now. Okay, at least, yeah. uh, at least Richard. At least they're not pants <laughs>
2: on.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So at least I have. They didn't earlier. Uh, <laughs> okay. At least they're good. not fighting.
2: So, um, so yeah, we'll. Uh, so that was the Big Bang, and now we've got. The big bounce. Yeah. So, what scientists do, and it is confusing, is that we typically look at, we try to understand our current understanding of the universe as best as we can. And, uh, but we all always inevitably find that there are, you know, lacunae, there are deficiencies in our understanding. And what we do is we look deeper at those, at those departures from the theory. So, Isaac Newton had a theory of gravity. Well, it explained a lot of things, but it doesn't explain. The orbit of the planet of Mercury, that's much more influenced by the proximity it has to the sun. So it came to Einstein to refine Newton's theory of gravity. For uh, the Big Bang, it became sort of um, very, very, uh, cosmologists became comfortable with the explanation that explained how the universe was currently evolving. But we had no idea how did that actually begin. Because if it was really the beginning of time, as people like Stephen Hawking think it is, how does, how does time begin when time doesn't exist? In other words, how do you go from the non-existence of something to the existence of something that you can then measure, uh, leaving aside the question of what is time and so forth? Um, and so there are many different theories as to how time could originate, for example. But none of them are really super well uh, accepted, I would say. And so it's much more natural to think that the universe is eternal and has always been there. And it's just evolving in a way that we perceive it to have a beginning, and but it will eventually come to an end, and something maybe like trillions of years from now. So keep paying your taxes. <laughs> you know, um, uh, but but in the in you know in the final analysis, we may not be able to to ascertain whether or not the Big Bang was the origin of time, or whether it was another evolution of a cyclical universe that goes through cycles of collapse and expansion uh, for eons uh, in the past and eons to come. You, well,
0: I know you you, you you gave a really good reason for a scientist not to have a, a gut feeling. So thankfully, I, I'm not uh, a scientist and because I have a gut feeling. <laughs> I don't know why. I just have a gut feeling. The big bounce is right.
2: <laughs> a lot of people feel like that a lot of people feel like that it is and uh, it's some it seems to be more natural in, in a certain sense now it has its own problems because it has to do away with things you ever look at you know when you're making your uh, do you drink coffee or tea guys
0: uh, I'm mostly about? a coffee drinker
2: I'm mostly a vodka drinker oh, but well, when I have no well, whiskey single <laughs> we'll have, yeah yeah we'll have to have a single malt someday uh, to get <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you ever have an Irish coffee, you know, where you mm-hmm. take a little coffee and you mix in a little bit of, uh, of I- Bailey's Irish cream, right? So when you do that, you're mixing together two different substances, you know, uh, whiskey and cream and then w- uh, and coffee, uh, but you never see it unmix, right? You never see things diso- separate out. And yet the laws of physics on the smallest possible scales are time reversal invariant, which means that... You can't tell which direction time is going. In other words, you ever look push your kids on a swing? And if you go away, the swing, if time went backwards, your child swinging on the swing would look identical. There'd be no way for you to tell, oh, all of a sudden the movie's going backwards. We're all going to, you know, I'm going to revert back to a child pretty soon. You know, it's Benjamin Button time. You could not see that because the laws of physics don't have a built-in arrow of time. And yet we never perceive the ability to go back in time. And we never perceive the ability to um, to create order from disorder in the sense that I just explained. So in the big bounce model, uh, somehow we have, to, the universe is very disordered and chaotic nowadays. And I don't just mean politically or COVID or whatever. It's just <laughs> the universe is expanding. It's much more spread out, diffuse, dilute. So how did it get to be so dilute today with high, what we call entropy or disorder, mm-hmm. uh, unless it started off with very low entropy? it's very hard to think of a collapse that produces order, right? You can have a collapse that, you know, produces, you know, kind of chaotic compression, heating, et cetera, but it's hard to produce a collapse that uh, sucks up entropy. And so there are challenges to that model as well that are significant. Uh, But my colleague, Paul Steinhardt, who's a character in the book, he has a very um, uh, elegant description of how it could be done. And I describe that in the book.
0: Good, because I want to see that and read that in the book. Because my gut feeling was starting to change back to the Big Bang, yeah. We're explaining that, so now we can bring it back to the Big Bounce. I don't know. I quite like it. It's more comforting. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's just the the, the chance that it's it's not all going to end. one right. Two, well, <laughs> I'll have ended far before then. Um, so we're in lockdown. Um, we're all we're all in our homes. You've been all over the world. You've been. The bottom of the world. He's
1: been to it's, the South Pole. He's probably one of the right.
0: yeah. um, What about in lockdown? How are you keeping busy? Are you still in keeping the experiments going?
2: Yeah. So the experiments are all ongoing. Uh, you know, we've gotten to much more Zoom calls, and we're we're doing less of you know, obviously face to face meetings almost non-existent. We do have the ability to use our laboratory if we're socially distant. Uh, here in at San UCSD, Diego. Or? Yeah, at UCSD. Okay. Chile is in a different state of lockdown. And it's very frustrating because let's say the COVID crisis resolves itself in the Northern Hemisphere uh, this summer. Well, that's the middle of winter in the Southern Hemisphere. And so we're logistically planning on what we call risk analysis and trying to understand, you know, how can we get concrete up there, diesel fuel, it, it's all on our own. My colleagues are, are brilliant at, at, at uh, not only cosmology, but logistics and design and we have to be engineers and and uh, diesel generator maintenance men and women. It's very uh, surprising to me because I, I thought I'd just be looking through a telescope all day and really I'm just looking at a telecon all day. <laughs> do, do, you, um, do you think that this is
0: the, the way we go, with some of the things which we're doing now with Zoom calls and things like that, do you think that's going to stick uh, and we're going to see more remote learning because I've been ever since I watched Star Trek: Next Generation. I've mm. been waiting to have conversations on view screens, and um, uh, I mean we've got we've got the iPads, we've got the flip phones, you know. So do you think some of these things will will stick, and we're seeing a bit of sea change?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, people are saying, when's it going to go back to normal? And I say, this is normal. This is <laughs> this is the <laughs> new normal. I mean, if you look at it from the perspective, even if you don't believe in, you know, climate change, you know, obviously I, I do, but, but looking at it, thinking about, you know, we spend tens of thousands of dollars traveling to give, you know, uh, for 10 or a hundred people in the collaboration to speak for 15 minutes. Um, that's not a very good use of money, time, resources, and I'm actually, you know, thinking about different ways that you, you, we could actually you build in this new normal um, and make it, you know, kind of positive for both the people that are creating things like podcasts and and and, and hosting lecture series, kind of like master classes, but with scientists. And you know, I'm trying to work on that with some friends of mine, just as a hobby and my spare which, well, which that's doesn't, interesting doesn't really exist.
1: Brian, you've traveled all over, like giving a lecture, even was like, like you said, maybe 30 minutes, like you're in California, yeah. then you go to New York, then you have to go here where you could definitely have done that from your own home online, you know? So that is interesting.
2: So Some of my friends, you know, podcast I put out today with uh, professor, David Kaiser of MIT, he's more less sanguine about, you know, kind of taking over technology, taking over and replacing the, you know, we call it the sage on the stage, you know, takes one rock, and scrapes it on another rock, a blackboard, a piece of chalk on a blackboard. He thinks that'll remain because we need this human contact. And you know, I pointed out that you know MIT or UCSD could accept you know a hundred times more people if it was always virtual. And so think about all the children that don't get a UCSD education because we don't have the physical space, we don't have the dorms, we don't have the fact. But if you can do it virtually now, not everything can be done as well virtually. I fully admit that you know the laboratory class, chemistry, biology class. Um, on the other hand, you know, who would you rather learn from, you know, Brian Keating or, you know, Galileo and, and, and think about virtualizing, you know, as we go forward, artificial intelligence takes over and we have augmented reality, we have enhanced uh, learning capabilities, how great that's going to be uh, for our children and their children. And, you know, hopefully that will democratize education. And I did an interview with Peter Diamandis and that's his big thing how do you um how do you make education flatten it out so that more people in more areas of the world can do it and he's very sanguine about 5G technology and you know places like africa uh, are going to completely bypass everything from ban- the banking system to the wired telephone lines maybe they can bypass this you know trillion dollar you know a year industry we call the university system and maybe i can get you know i've had some wonderful students from uh, Uganda and Kenya that have physically come to America, you know, think of how, how much, you know, easier it would have been for them to stay in, to stay in, in Africa and learn just a certain stuff that we did, uh, with some exceptions, I would like them to come and actually work on the telescopes because they're very good at that. Uh, but just thinking outside the box, I think it is going to permanently change the way that education, um, is, is, uh, is, is done. It's unavoidable.
0: I think that's a really good point, and uh, I teach uh, journalism at the university mm-hmm. in the UK, and yeah. it's a it's a hard one in some ways because we've got to get the cameras out and get in radio studios, but we uh, it's it's this this resource which has been bubbling under the surface for so long, um, but we've never been forced to use it, so we've just not we've not done things virtually, and now we've been forced to do it and move everything online. And actually, it's working really, really well. And my wife's um, a psychologist, and she would be um, meeting people for, for treatments, run mm-hmm. tests on them, um, you know, tests for, like, dementia and such like. And now, this is all can be done online. And people were saying, oh, you, you couldn't do a test for dementia, for example, online. Oh, well, it just so happens that somebody has worked it out, and there's a TED Talk we're going to watch tonight um, and um, of somebody explaining and going through it, and, and so yes, it can be done.
2: Right? Yeah, it certainly can be. And you know, I look at it with my kids. You know, I think the challenge is going to be uh, maintaining a work-life balance because yes. teaching your kids, teaching students at school, having some kind of physical routine. I think there is certainly a place for that, and it's it's not as intimate, you know, as if we were you know all in the same room. But look, we're in three different time zones. You know, widely separated. Uh, we're, we're, you know. And I, I was thinking this morning, and I woke up. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I, I wonder how Richard and Talina are going to do it. Is it by Zoom or whatever? And I was thinking, if this COVID crisis was COVID 18, Zoom wasn't that great about mm. a year ago. It didn't have the capabilities it does now, and there, you know, it has a lot of challenges, security issues. But um, I wouldn't. We wouldn't have been able to have you know these classes that we're teaching. My kids wouldn't be Zoom learning, and which I have to go to in thirty-eight seconds. Uh, but uh,
1: oh, <laughs> uh, oh, but then we better sign off. I
2: better, I better wrap up in a couple minutes, but but uh, they'll understand. Uh, yeah. But the but the but the fact is, if this crisis, you know, had occurred a year earlier, it would have been massively more disruptive, and that's simply because of the invention of this thing called Zoom. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, I just think if it was the eighties, have been worse. You know, no phones. Worse.
2: Yeah, it could be worse. It could be better. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have uh, spread as fast or something like that. Yeah, it's, oh, it's hard oh, to say, right?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. so, okay. Well, so, so the kids have, I know, because it's Friday. Oh, nine o'clock. Yes. So. Oh, oh, yes. I
0: so know. Yeah, it's, what it's, well, it's uh, five o'clock here. Brian, it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you very
1: so much for coming on our show. Great. We greatly appreciate
2: it. Taking be well, time. guys. Have a great <laughs> weekend. Bye. You too.
0: Bye-bye. Great. Thank you very much, Brian. That was really... Uh, that was really educational. You learned a lot, Talina.
1: I learned a lot, and now I actually can say what the Big Bang is all about versus a TV show. So I am happy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so remember, you can get in touch. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Richard W News and uh, Talina.
1: And I never use Twitter that much, but I'm getting back into it at Tales with Talina. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the email, which is talking transatlantic at outlook Well, Selena. Till next time.
1: Until next time. This is Talking Transatlantic.
2: Bye.
1: Bye.